Good morning. If you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Philemon. We'll be continuing where we left off last week, the book of Philemon, right after Titus and right, after, right before Hebrews. There's the little one-pager, for some of you a two-pager, as Susan pointed out to me in her study Bible. Last Sunday, we looked at the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, who's a uh, church leader in the city of Colossa. So just for a little bit of review, Philemon, a wealthy landowner and a rich man, had a slave or a bond servant, an indentured servant, who likely stole some items from him and ran away to Rome. And while in Rome, he could outrun Philemon, but he could not outrun the sovereignty of God. And God landed him right in the lap of Paul, who leads him to Christ. His life is changed. And he no doubt shares his story with Paul, and they begin to understand that they have some friends in common. Epaphras, who started the church in Colossa, who happens to be there with uh, Paul. Actually, likely somebody who brought Onesimus to Paul and had him learn under him. But he also reveals that he's Onesimus, the one that ran away from Philemon. And, and Paul has as we talked about last week, a bit of a dilemma. Do I take the easy way out and just keep Onesimus here and send Philemon a letter thanking him for the, 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 the service of Onesimus and, and he's a believer now, everything's good. Or do I actually send him back to Colossa where he has to be standing face to face with the person that he offended and will this church leader forgive him and welcome him back, as Paul has asked in the letter, as a brother, more than, more than a slave now. He's your brother. Paul gives us this Gospel example. He says, treat him like you would treat me. A reference to the exchange that Jesus did on the cross where He says, God, treat me as you would treat them. Punish me for their sin, and then receive them as you would receive me, righteous and holy. So when you look on them, see me, when it comes to judgment day, and right now in your wrath, look on me, and see them, and pour out your wrath on me. And then Paul gives another gospel example. He says, hey, if he owes you anything, I'll pay it. In full. And again, a reference to the cross of the debt for sin that we owed and Jesus paid in full for us. So we started and finished with a question last week. We, we said, what are the voices that are keeping you from forgiving? What are the voices that are keeping you from forgiving? We, we looked at a couple of the relationships that are mentioned in the letter. And so, let's read it again together. It's not that long. Let's read the letter again together. We'll look at a couple of those relationships and talk, be reminded of the voices that are in 
Philemon's head right now. We'll expound a little bit on that. And then we're going to look at, as I promised, we're going to look at a couple aspects of forgiveness. And I'm going to share with you some extra biblical evidences that I think show that Philemon actually did forgive Onesimus. So I'm going to share that. Even, even share some biblical references, although there is absolutely no solid biblical evidence that Philemon actually forgives Onesimus. There's no reference to a party. There's no, there's no actual writing that says, man, it was awesome. Philemon hugged him and like threw a robe on him and it was a party. There's no reference to that. Canonized or otherwise. But there are some evidences that it took place. And so we're going to look at those this week as well. But let's read the letter again. Talk about a couple of those relationships, those voices. We'll look at some evidence as to why I believe Onesimus was forgiven. And then we'll look at some of the aspects of forgiveness. Okay? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. For those of you that weren't here last week, Aphia is Philemon's wife. Archippus is Philemon's son, a church planter in the Asia Minor region. And to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. It's my favorite place to stop. What a great opening to a letter. I don't know that I've ever received one that that sounded like that, unfortunately, in my life. Accordingly, though, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. That was a reference to his name. Onesimus means profitable or useful. And he's saying he's actually living up to the name that God gave him now. I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare me a guest room, for I'm hoping that through my, your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, here we are, part two. We left you with the cliffhanger last week. Did Philemon forgive Onesimus? Well, I don't think we can come to an absolutely final yes to that. But I certainly think we have evidence to come to a strong conclusion to this question. And unless I miss something over the last two weeks, and scholars for the last 2,000 years have missed something, I don't see any biblical evidence that there was ever a party or anything like that. So unless I missed it, and every other biblical scholar and theologian over the last 2,000 years missed it, I don't see it. However, I think that we can lean towards and see from extra-biblical writings that we have some evidence that we can come to. So I'm going to share four reasons why I think Philemon did forgive Onesimus. So first, one, toward the end of the letter to Colossians, the church at, at large in Colossa. Now, the church in Colossa met in multiple houses. This particular letter we're studying in Philemon was written to the church body that met in his house. I love how Paul says the church in Colossa, the church in, in your house that meets in your house. So the group that's meeting in your house, read them this letter. But he writes a letter to the Colossians, which is multiple home churches that meet in Colossa, and it's to be distributed to them. <clears throat> At the end of that letter, he tells them that he's sending Tychicus, who is Tychicus is the, is the disciple of Paul who is delivering this letter and, and, and with Onesimus. He says he's, he's sending Tychicus to them along with Onesimus. So, is this a clue that maybe after seeing Philemon, he's saying, hey, to the rest of you in Colossae, Onesimus is going to be with Tychicus. He's almost rolling the dice and saying, there's no doubt that Philemon's going to forgive Onesimus. So when Tychicus delivers this letter to the church in Colossae, Onesimus is going to be with him. It's possible. It's not the strongest evidence. I should also note that uh, Paul does anticipate that Philemon is going to forgive Onesimus. If you look at verse 21 again, he says, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So, did he know that 
beyond a shadow of a doubt because he knew Philemon well enough and he knew Onesimus well enough and he knew Epaphras and Tychicus and all of these guys. And he, he just knew the character and nature of who these guys were. He's like, hey, I know Onesimus will be with Tychicus when he gets that letter to the church in, Cor- in Colossa. It's quite possible. As nice as and easy as that sounds, I don't think that's our most compelling evidence. I just don't think it's the most natural way for us to understand that connection. And we don't even know whether the church in Colossa got their letter before they delivered the one to Philemon. They're in the same city, right? So we, we, it's kind of a hard conclusion to come to. Both Philemon and Colossians were delivered by Tychicus at the same time, so we don't know whether they landed there at the same time. So we'll chalk that up to as circumstantial as it can get. Now I point to some extra-biblical writings, okay? Not letters to churches in Asia Minor that are not canonized. They're not inspired, but they're written by church leaders. So just like if you would write me a letter when you send me on vacation to Barbados for a month. Oh, sorry, sorry. I mean, what, what? You might send me a letter. We're not going to canonize it and make it the Word of God, but it's a letter from from a church leader to a church leader. So let's look at one of those. Ignatius is a church leader in the early uh, church in Asia Minor. A writing from him around 90 to 100 A.D. Okay. Now, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week, but the letter to Philemon was written in the early 60s, 60 A.D.-ish. Okay. We know it's probably before 67 A.D. because there's no mention of the earthquake in Colossa, which we'll mention in a second. So this letter is written in 63, we'll just say. And around the 90 to 100 A.D. area, 40 years later, we have a letter from Ignatius written to the church in Ephesus, 90 miles to their west. And he mentions their church leader, Onesimus. He talks about, here's what his letter says, I received therefore your whole multitude in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your bishop in the flesh, term for their pastor. Man, this just, this just makes me cry. whom I pray you by Jesus Christ that you would all seek to be like him. And indeed, Onesimus himself greatly commends your good order in God. That ye all live according to the truth and that no sect has any dwelling among you. Now understand that Colossae was riddled with all kinds of different religions and it was a mixture. Paul mentions about angel worship and Colossians and all of these different things. So here we are 40 years down the road and a pastor in Asia Minor named Onesimus is being mentioned by Ignatius. I think that's really compelling evidence. Now, you could argue that the name Onesimus for a former slave is about like calling somebody Joe here in America. There's plenty of Joes, and there was plenty of Onesimuses. The name means useful, and it was a common slave name. There were a lot of conversions in the slave community. 
So could another Onesimus have been this Onesimus that Ignatius is talking about? It's possible. But there's no certain absolute reference that this is the same Onesimus. But interestingly, in my study of this particular Onesimus, in 90-something A.D., they're not exactly sure when, but in the late 90s, he's killed as a martyr, and he tells them that they can take his head off. Interestingly, that's how Paul was martyred. Kind of interesting. Ignatius also says, Onesimus commends you in your good order. And he thinks the world of you. You have refreshed him, it says. Same words Paul uses when he says, refresh me in the Lord. So, one could argue, and many other scholars over the years agree, this is probably the same Onesimus. That wasn't good enough for me, because I like to do my own stuff. And so I, I wanted some more. I wanted a little bit more. So, dun, 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 we have an Onesimus that died the same way Paul. His language is Paulinic. Could be the same Onesimus. Another thought I had, and about 20 other commentators, by the way, mentioned this. If Philemon didn't forgive Onesimus, would we be reading about it? If Philemon got a letter from Paul, and think about it, most of us here, especially back in the day, kids, this is, you know, this is before texting and phones, and we used to pass notes. People would write things with lead on paper and hand it to someone. And if you didn't like the content of that letter, what'd you do with it? Crumbled it up, you threw it in the trash. Or if you were really conniving, you saved it in your backpack for six weeks later so you could bring it out and be like, see, they were mean to me six weeks ago. Whatever. But if Philemon didn't forgive, if he was infuriated and he pulls Onesimus in, he takes him to the courtyard and he flogs him, you think he would have copied the letter over 95 times and distributed it throughout Asia Minor? Pretty good compelling evidence that the request in the letter was not only done, but exceeded. So, I think that's the third reason why I believe Philemon didn't reject Paul's request to receive Onesimus back. I believe Philemon was deeply in love with the gospel and followed the request of his brother to forgive And I doubt that he would have, like the other letters, copied it close to a hundred times and sent it throughout the region. Lastly, the fourth reason that I think that Onesimus forgave Onesimus is that if you look at biblical history, I mean, if you look at church history, and I got to dig into the church history archives, I had to go back and ask a couple friends I went to Bible college with, like, you remember that church history class we took? Like, what was that textbook that showed the timeline? Like, you got to do a little digging. But if you dig, 
you look at church history from 60 AD to 100 AD, Asia Minor and Colossa in particular grew the church in a tremendous rate. Christian conversions that were recorded were off the charts for that area from 60 AD to 100 AD. The letter to Philemon was written in the early 60s AD, and Philemon's death, I mean uh, Onesimus's death by beheading, was in the late 90s. If Philemon would not have forgiven Onesimus, here's what I believe would have happened. I believe his house church would have tanked. The people that were gathering and giving everything that they had in their life to fellowshipping together and progressing the gospel, it would have died because their faithful leader didn't even follow the gospel, didn't even forgive someone, couldn't even look beyond his own possessions, couldn't get past the voices that were in his ear, and I believe their church would have died. I believe the churches that his son Archippus was a part of and starting would have died. Because he just said, my, my father's a fraud. This whole thing is a lie. He talks a good game, but he's got no walk. I think it would have killed the church in Asia Minor. But... In church history, we see the expansion of the church, particularly in that 40-year period. Now, I mentioned earlier about an earthquake. In 17 AD, there was an earthquake that completely destroyed Colossae. It was under Roman um, occupation. It was part of the Roman expansion. And in 17 AD, the Romans threw a bunch of money at it and they rebuilt Colossae. Part of a trading route. It was an important city. It was an investment for them. 66, 67 AD, there's another earthquake that completely levels Colossae. Destroys it. The difference is 50 years from 17 to 67, Colossae has lost its importance in the trade route and Ephesus is the big one. And, and, and Laodicea has become the bigger. It's not worth the investment for the Romans to bring Colossae back to life. They don't care. So they send zero money to rebuild Colossae in AD 67. And in 11 years, the city is completely rebuilt without a penny from the Roman Empire. That to me, is absolute evidence of a church who loves its community and absolutely is invested in its community and that is inspired and moved. That, to me, honestly, is the most compelling evidence that Philemon forgave Onesimus. Because without a penny of government funds, they rebuilt the city in 11 years. By the way, it took 23 years for the Romans to rebuild it. With all their money and their gold and their horses and their chariots and, and their influence. 
And in my opinion, Christians rebuilt it in 11. So, there's some evidence, extra biblical evidence that I think supports the fact that Philemon forgave Onesimus. Okay? Now, now we can start looking because we're all going to agree, okay, that, that Philemon forgave Onesimus. So as promised, we'll look at some principles of forgiveness. What do we see in the text and in other biblical readings here? What do we see in the text that gives us... So last week I said that Paul talks about a, 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 uh, a faith as our foundation, a, a foundation of faith in, in, in forgiveness. So, so we, have a, we have a foundation of, of forgiveness in our faith, okay? I got that all mixed up. There's three F's in there, and I messed it all up. But there is a foundation of, of forgiveness in our faith. Paul establishes that. He calls on that. He reminds Philemon, hey, you remember? You owe me your, you even owe me your life. Like you became a believer under me. You received forgiveness. Give forgiveness. So he establishes that we have a foundation of forgiveness in our faith. And then I think we want to see that we have a future of forgiveness that should continue. And so we have to have it as a default. And so as promised, some principles of forgiveness, because forgiveness just bristles the hair on the back of everybody's neck. It does. When you mention the word forgiveness, people immediately think of broken relationships that they have. So, one, if you're taking notes, as we recently saw in the Sermon on the Mount, unforgiveness is murder. Bottom line. If you don't forgive, you're a murderer. That's, that's, and there's a, there, there's a good principle to start with. Nobody wants to be a murderer. So, forgive. Because the sixth commandment says you shall not kill but it's not only murder that, it's, that he's limiting it to. And we saw in, in our study on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus expands that and says if you hate your brother, you're a murderer in your heart. So anger, hatred, bitterness, malice. We said last week that unforgiveness is the, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Makes things grow. Fertilizer, thank you. Uh, unforgiveness is the fertilizer for the root of bitterness. Okay, so one, don't be a murderer, be a forgiver. Secondly, and we touched on this last week, whoever has offended you, whoever has sinned against you, has actually sinned against God. Because you are a fallible being. And fallible can't sin against fallible. Fallible can sin against infallible. And the only infallible is God. So all offenses are actually offenses to God. And so forgiveness should reflect what God would do, and that is that He would forgive. So, be a forgiver because God has forgiven you. And He also says, be sure that you forgive because if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. So there are many definitions of forgiveness, and I think the simplest one is this. If you want to write anything down from today, this is what you write down. This is a clear-cut definition of forgiveness. Surrendering the right to hurt 
others in response to the way they hurt us. Surrendering the right to hurt others in response to the way they've hurt us. Forgiveness means refusing to retaliate and hold bitterness against people for the ways they have wounded us. Whether they come repentant or unrepentant. It is a unilateral act. Forgiveness is not conditional on the person being repentant. Or even willing to acknowledge what they've done. Forgiveness is not saying that sin doesn't matter. That's not what forgiveness is. This is the, this is the stumbling block to forgiveness. You want me to say it one more time? Go back to the definition. Okay. Forgiveness is surrendering the right to hurt others in response to the way they hurt us. Okay? So, this is a big stumbling block to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying that sin doesn't matter. It's not an approval of what the person has done. That's not what it is. It's not minimizing the offense. As a matter of fact, forgiveness is acknowledging that the other person sinned and that you have the right response to it. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is acknowledging that the other person has sinned. It's also an acknowledgement that they may never be able to make it right. They may never be able to make it right. And neither could you. Only God can. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 when he's writing to the church in Ephesus and he says, hey, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He doesn't say will yourself to get over the offense. That's not what he says. He says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So forgiveness is not actually dependent upon whether the person is repentant or not. Relationship is. Relationship is dependent upon whether someone is repentant or not. Think about this. If God in Christ forgave us, then forgiving someone cannot mean that we're diminishing the wrong that they've done. It's not. God couldn't do that and remain just. He couldn't say, ah, oh, that sin's not that bad, and remain just. So remember that. Forgiveness is not based on whether the person wants it or not. Lastly, forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation or restoration. This is one I struggled with. This, this one was tough. Because for 20-something years, my attitude towards forgiveness has, has always been it's a failure if I don't reconcile. Lastly, forgiveness does not mean reconciliation or restoration. It does not require restoring trust. It does not require inviting people to hurt us again. That's not what it requires. Forgiveness is separate 
from relationship. That was a hard lesson for me to learn. That was another big stumbling block. Because if I forgave them, the first thought in my mind was, I'm telling them it's okay that they did what they did to me. Well, forgiveness is not about diminishing sin. We already established that. Forgiveness is also not about reconciliation and restoration. It should be a goal. But forgiveness is unconditional. Meaningful reconciliation and relationship restoration are conditional. Forgiveness is not. Hear me. Forgiveness is unconditional, believer. You must forgive, believer. Reconciliation and restoration are conditional. They are conditional. It's conditional on the offender's genuine repentance. Sorry doesn't always mean repent. Repent means to change direction. So when someone is repentant, they change direction. They don't keep going in the same direction and keep hurting and keep hurting and keep hurting in the same way. So restoration and relationship are conditional, but forgiveness is not. And because forgiveness can be hard, God gives us great reasons to forgive. I'll close with these, with these thoughts. Forgiving people doesn't mean they won't experience consequences for their sin. It's a, stumble, it's a stumbling block to forgiveness. I want them to pay for it. Your forgiveness is not, your forgiveness is not related to their consequence. Your forgiveness is not related to their consequence. Your forgiveness of them is not related to their consequence. And there is always consequence for sin. We think about people that go out here and kill people and they never get caught. My wife and I have watched a couple of those like cold case shows where you're like, this guy got away with it. He's been gone for 45 years. He got away with it. It riles up anger in you. Like, he got away with it. Sin always has a consequence. Always has a consequence. And forgiveness is separate from it. Why? How do I know? Because the Gospel shows me that. Your sin has a consequence. Your sin wasn't diminished when Jesus forgave you. He paid for it. So sin will always have a consequence. Nobody gets away with it. Somebody's going to pay. So we too forgive because we said this last week that we don't want Satan to outwit us with his ways. We don't want to be ignorant of his design. He would love for us to live in unforgiveness so that the root of bitterness would grow up and choke out the fruit of the gospel in our life. That's what Satan would love for us to do. Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. 
who accuses them day and night before God. Satan is constantly accusing. He is the sworn enemy of forgiveness. His accusations fly day and night. Forgiveness is hostility to the devil. Forgiveness is hostility to Satan. It defiles his life's work. Because forgiveness is hostility to his way. But for Christians, forgiveness is an act of peacemaking. Purchased and made possible by the cross that Paul pointed to through his actions of receive him as you would receive me and put his debt upon me. And so the verse we read earlier when we did prayer in our service, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now, 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 now see how these, this verse, we don't just read random scripture verses that we put in a, a, a we, we, we connect them in our worship service so that we are pointing everything to Christ in our service. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been forgiven. We read in, 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 in the Scripture verses to, to open the, the, the service. You've been taken by the captor and you've seen your sin in the foreign land. Hear their cry and forgive them, Lord. Here it is. Been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Hostility died on Calvary's hill. Peace grew in its place. And forgiveness is the fertilizer for that growth. Therefore, the cross torments Satan. It is the evidence of God's forgiveness. And it torments him. It is also the reminder of his end game. It is also the reminder of his end game. And every act of forgiveness since that day, it eats at him. So you can feed the homeless, and that'll make Satan mad. But forgive the homeless guy that stole your purse out of your car, and that'll send him for a loop. So I close with this from our text. Philemon, verse 21. This is my statement to you, my fellow brothers and sisters at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. Confident of your obedience. I write to you. Knowing that you will do even more than I say. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity 
to share the Word. I thank You, Lord, for the extra-biblical writings that we're able to look at today. We know that the Gospel is a mystery and there is so much that we don't know. and There are a lot of what we would consider unanswered questions that we have when we read Your Word. Thank You for helping us answer some of those. Thank You for at least allowing us to to put together some puzzle pieces. We know that it will be truly revealed to us when we are truly in fellowship with You, unhindered, uninhibited, in eternity. And we will praise You for 10,000 years unending because of Your revelation to us and the beauty of Your redemptive story. But Thank You for those parcels, those small nibbles of that glory that we get to partake of and enjoy and devour at times. Lord, I pray for my church family. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for my family. I pray for me that You would pull up the root of bitterness. That You would spray the weed killer of grace and forgiveness into its hole and that I would have a foundation of forgiveness and a future of forgiveness. And that it would be my default. That I would value nothing more than the truth of the Gospel. And I thank You. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.